but I'd love to hear you talk through how you manage all of this in inbound in terms of questions. Yeah, well, it's it's gotten easier, actually, because I, I understand what the goal is, right? The goal is to help as many people um, as efficiently as possible, right? The goal is scale. How do we help more people? And as a developer advocate in this space, so I guess now we're getting to more nitty gritty developer advocacy stuff. As a developer advocate in this space, or really just any space, your job is not only to be a wizard of your technology, but of your industry. So as Web3 or smart contract developer advocates, we both get to and have to be smart contract experts. So when people ask me general questions, that's a part of my role, right? Because I both get to and have to be um, a specialist kind of just of the industry. Hello and welcome to another episode of Devs Do Something. Today's guest is Patrick Collins. You may know Patrick from his YouTube channel or his work at Chainlink, where he serves as a lead developer advocate. Patrick is one of the industry's best educators in DevRel pros. His 32-hour uh, full-stack Web3 development course that he recently released, recently released was viewed over 1.3 million times and lives on as one of the best resources for people who want to go from zero to hero as a Web3 dev. In this episode, we talk through how Patrick thinks about developer education, developer tooling, and building high-quality developer communities. We also touched on what he's most excited about in the space overall, the kinds of tooling he, he wishes he had time to work on or the, the things that he hopes somebody else work, will work on. And also, we, we, we go into the Chainlink pipeline and what, what they're working on over there. This was a fun episode for me because I got to ask Patrick a lot of questions that are really relevant to my own day-to-day -day work uh, in developer education and developer relations. Uh, and I think you're going to enjoy this episode a lot if you are like me and you work in an educator style role, or if you're just getting started in the space and, and want to hear an inspiring story from somebody who went really from zero to hero on Web3 himself and is now spreading the knowledge of how to do so to other people. So I think you're going to love the episode with Patrick. Uh, so sit back, enjoy, and let us know what you think. Are you a DAO or crypto native business with salaried employees? Or do you perhaps work for one? If so, whether you're a team of five or 500, your organization can save time and money by streaming salaries with Superfluid, who also happens to be the beloved producer of this podcast. With salary streaming, your management team no longer has to worry about executing multi-sig operations every month or manually executing hundreds of separate transactions to pay their team. Contributors and employees, on the other hand, get paid by the second, which, to be honest with you, is a pretty killer benefit on the receiving end. Those of us getting paid via stream can connect our wallet to the Superfluid dashboard and see our balances ticking up in real time. It's kind of mesmerizing and feels like you're being jacked 10 years in the future. When you're paid in a stream, it flows in perpetuity until your team needs to adjust compensation, which effectively puts Web3 payroll on autopilot. Salary streaming is easy to set up thanks to our recent integration with CoinShift, the leading crypto treasury management platform. In just a few clicks, you can securely set up payroll for hundreds of employees in just a single transaction, all from CoinShift's dashboard. 
If this sounds like something you're interested in exploring, you should visit superfluid.finance/payroll and book a salary streaming demo today. Thanks to all of our sponsors. Let's get on to the episode. All right, so we're here today with Patrick Collins. Welcome, man. Hello. Yeah, thanks so much for having me. Excited to be here. Yeah, it's good to have you on. Um, We'll get to a couple things today, both on smart contract development, and I want to go deep into some of your like DevRel work and education stuff. But before I do that, the first question we like to ask everybody is how they got involved in the space. So I'd love to hear how you actually got into uh, crypto. Yeah, sure. So uh, I first learned about Bitcoin back in maybe like 2012, 2013 or something in a uh, one of my college classes. And they were like, yeah, Bitcoin, peer-to-peer, cash thing. And I literally remember going, that sounds really dumb. And like, that was it. I said, that sounds really stupid. Why would anyone care? Moved on with my life. And, uh, you know, maybe seven, six years later, uh, I got out of college. I was working at a um, a quantitative uh, asset manager, basically doing uh, software support engineering. And <clears throat> I started looking at uh, smart contracts, and I was like, "Whoa, these are these are kind of really cool." Um, because I was working in finance, and I was like, "Whoa, these can kind of totally re- revolutionize the way traditional finance works." Um, and I started going deeper, deeper down the rabbit hole, especially in the terms of you know DeFi, because that's where I was and. I basically just kind of fell in love and uh, been here ever since. Nice. And why why was Chainlink one thing that you were particularly interested in in the beginning? I mean, I, I guess one interesting, <laughs> one interesting thing about Chainlink itself is that in all of your content, in like videos you watch with you or even like Sergey and things like that, it's all about like what a smart contract is. And you guys get really first principles on what what these things are, what they mean, why they're impactful. And I'm curious as to like whether or not there was some tie you made between Chainlink and your overall vision for the space in the beginning. Yeah, no, there was. Well, so the the reason I first heard about smart contracts was um, actually I, I, after the hedge fund. I had, I guess, for more information here, I'd worked at a data provider, and Chainlink had reached out saying, "Hey, we would like to put your data on chain." And that's why I was like, "Well, that sounds stupid. You know, bit, why would you want to put data on Bitcoin? Like, that's dumb." Um, and that's when I started learning about, oh, okay, these are these smart contracts things that, that can be, be these really sophisticated financial products. And the more I looked into smart contracts, the more I, I thought, and I still believe this to this day, I think smart contracts are actually fundamentally uninteresting without some connection to the real world. And based off of what we see in DeFi, I think that the proof is in the pudding. I think that's even true. If you look at the top 10 DeFi protocols, most of them have oracles as a core component. You know, if you look at Aave, Aave needs to understand the pricing of an asset in order to value the collateral. Um, you look at something like Synthetics. Synthetics is is creating uh, assets on chain for you to buy and sell with, and the only way that works is if they have a price feed. Um, I think all these interesting use cases are only enabled if you have an oracle. Yeah, no, that makes sense. I think uh, we, we can't live in this completely siloed world and think that we're going to build useful applications for everybody, right? That's just nonsensical. Uh, it's, it's like if we didn't, if you didn't have a connection to the real world, it's like if you go to your any video game you play, you can't take anything with you, right? There needs to be some type of connection. And to me, that's what Chainlink is. Chainlink is that connection that brings kind of all this crypto magic to like having real world application and real world uh, use case. For sure, for sure. So you 
learn about smart contracts through Chainlink and this whole data provider role you were in. Uh, what were some of the early things you tinkered on in the space? I mean, I, I remember kind of like seeing some of your YouTube videos a year or two ago. Right? <laughs> and I think there are even things you posted before then. But like, was it mostly on the data provider side? Like, did you start running a Chainlink node initially? Yeah, like- so, so that was a big part. So I started running a Chainlink node. I started running an ETH node. Um, I, I, I got really into the infrastructure side. I don't know why. Uh, I just kind of was like, all right, cool. Like, let me play with this stuff. And um, yeah, so I had some videos on like how to run a node with different setups. Uh, and then I got more and more into the smart contract side, how to do stuff. Uh, back then, I was big, big Pythonista. Pretty much everything I did was in Python. So I had a bunch of like how to do X in Python. Um, now I've branched off and I do more random sh- stuff. And I even, you know, touch JavaScript pretty regularly. But um, yeah, in, in the beginning, yeah, infrastructure and then Python and um, just anything that's interesting I, i'm like cool let's try that let's make that a video worst case scenario i learned something for sure yeah we'll, we'll get into the 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 whole languages thing in, in, a, in a little in a little bit here i know you hate javascript i want to know if that's still the case <laughs> <laughs> well wait hold on, hold on. I, I asked it there so it, i so here's how i describe it to people usually uh if you have a tool that tool is usually designed for something you know if you have a garden hoe and you use it for gardening, that's great. That's what it's designed for. If you then take this garden hoe and say, okay, well, now I'm going to use this to uh, lay down pavement, I would say that that's not really what the tool is used for. And so my argument for JavaScript, JavaScript is is meant to be this browser language that we kind of mutated, and now we put on the back end as well. And so it's like, when you go look up JavaScript knowledge, you have to like contextualize yourself. Okay, am I looking at like Node.js, which is a runtime of JavaScript, or am I looking at like real JavaScript on the front end? And then there's like TypeScript, and then there's. So it's not that I hate it. I think that it's a tool that's good for what it is. However, I I hate how everyone just sticks it everywhere, and they're like, all right, JavaScript everywhere, and and that's you know in my mind it's like okay, I'm using the I have a garden hoe as my tool. Let's just use it for everything since I already have it. It's like the meme. It's like the whatever that slap it on the the water that's leaking out. Slap JavaScript on there. That's yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> if if you have a hammer, everything looks like a nail. Exactly. That's everything. Yep. Yeah. Okay. We'll we'll get into smart contract languages in, in a couple of minutes. But was anything coming from like the the like I guess traditional finance world, right? Where you're probably again lots of Python in that whole quant finance space. Um, was anything kind of difficult to get your mi- mind around? In the early days of learning about smart contracts, what were those things? For sure, like oh, absolutely. Like uh, so part of the reason why I think I I do developer relations and developer advocacy too, and I make videos, is because I go, okay, if I can understand it, hopefully anybody else should be able to. Or, or that's how I tell myself. I I say you're you're the dumbest smart person in the room. Um, like yeah, it, it was hard for me. Um, there and that was that's part of what I take. Uh, when I'm creating content now, I, I think, okay, what were the frustrations that I had? What were some of the frustrations that I know other people had when learning this stuff? The decentralized stuff was confusing. The the immutability was confusing. Um, the transactions was confusing. I mean, everything was confusing. It took it did it wasn't like oh cool like I get it let's go. It took me a while um, to learn a lot of this stuff for sure. And then were you always like a were you always into YouTube and making videos, or was that something that you just started <laughs> doing for fun? Like, where, where did the actual content creation side come in? Um, I always liked. I've always liked making videos. I've always. Um, 
I've never been very good uh, at making videos. Uh, I mean, I had another YouTube channel like where I would do kind of like classic, really just stupid YouTube stuff. Um, and uh, yeah, like self-taught video editing there. I mean, like it's I feel stupid saying it because I'm like, oh, yeah, well, I'm still kind of crap. Uh, you know, I know how to do a lot of the basic stuff quickly now. Like that's <laughs> that's it. But yeah, I've always like making videos. I'm a I'm a very like, you know, I. I'm always asking, am I doing this right? Like if I read instructions, I have half the time I'm like, okay, if someone says, okay, we're going to teach you how to put on a jacket, right? And they say, step one, put your arm through the, the armhole of the jacket. My brain goes, well, which arm, which hole? Is, is it this way? Is it this way? And I just start asking all these questions and I don't have enough context to know like how to actually do it. And then I, I'll, I'll do it one way and that'll be wrong and that'll ruin it for what's later down the road right so having so for me always having some visual thing to be like oh okay yes that is what it's supposed to look like has always been really helpful to, for me um and so i i like making videos visual learner um great let's make videos so i mean i love documentation as well and i think documentation is super important um but documentation only makes sense if you already have the context of what this tool should be looking for, right? If you've put on jackets before, okay, reading about how to put on a new jacket is going to be no problem. If you've never put on a jacket before, you might be super confused. And I think very strongly about that when it comes to blockchain. If you're reading documentation and they go, oh yeah, now just pop open your, your browser wallet with your private key, you're going to be like, wait, what? I need to have a private key in my VS code? That's like super weird. So... Uh, I think having that visual piece there is really, really important, especially for new people in Web3. Yeah, I'm with you. There's a lot of um, information that's lost in purely written tutorials and documentation by itself that I think YouTube has been amazing. Um, it, it's been amazing in, it, in that it's kind of filled that role of like all the implicit things that you people do without realizing they need to explain it. Um, and I think that's that's a really, really good point. So I mean, like when it comes to your process for making videos right like like what what has this typically looked like for you um do, do you come up with like an idea and you're like wow this this feels like it needs to be explained or like wow i just think this thing is so interesting i'd love to make a video on it do you get more strategic and think i mean i'm sure you have now like you, you made a 30 hour solidity course or something like that so you know I, I would love i guess to just understand what the behind the scenes process looks like for how you put together a video today sure it's it's so funny answering these questions because i'm like I'm like, am I the authoritative person to talk about video creation? All right, sure. Um, so it depends. Um, a lot of the time when I think about making content, I literally just go, what's a piece of knowledge that I don't have right now that would be good to have? Like, that's pretty much it. Um, or even more simply, uh, I'm going to go learn something. I'm going to go make a piece of content on it and that way it'll get ingrained in me and anybody else who wants to learn about it can just piggyback off, off what I've done piggyback off my learning so that's kind of the the super high level of it it's just like I'm going to make content because you know it, it's helpful for me to learn and hopefully it'll be helpful for other people to learn as well but that's not always the case so something like the 32 hour video the 16 hour video that was from a point of hey What's a need in this space that we 
what that we need? What are we lacking? Where is there information lacking? Or not even information, just like what's something that the space needs that I can contribute to? Where can I create value for other people? And to me, uh, I had gone through, you know, when I first started in the space, you know, three years ago, I'd gone through a lot of the education stuff. And I was really disappointed in what I saw. A lot of people using, you know, zero four of solidity, using outdated versions of truffle, using, um, you know, not teaching people about like, hey, if you leak your private key on GitHub, you will lose all your funds, like just a, a lack of domain expertise in the space that in my mind should be required in all these things. And so I said, okay, um, I want to help up the education in the space. And actually, originally, what I did is I went around to every like education thing, like I went to crypto zombies, I went to Udemy, I went to all these places that were giving out education. And I was like, hey, like, let me make PRs, let me update your stuff. And as you know, a lot of education is a little bit more closed source. And they're not as into having people do that. So I said, Okay, screw this. I'm just gonna do it myself. Uh, and I did that twice. Uh, and I said, I'm just going to say, Okay, what is everything? everything that I wish I knew getting in the space that of course taught me beginning to end. Let's just stick that into a video. Let's make as much value as possible to try to onboard as many new people to the space because that's what we need right now. We need more people to understand why we're building and then how to build and what all this looks like. So the process behind so to answer your question, uh, there's a couple things I think about, hey, what's like a fun video that I want to do to to teach me and to teach other people some new concept? Or B, where can I create a ton of value for other people? Um, so that's really the, the creation process. It's one of those two. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. There's a lot of things I can unpack in, in that. Um, but it does, like, like you said, it sounds like it is, it is broken up between I'm trying to learn and I'm trying to do this in more of like a product-minded way where I'm trying to essentially build an educational product, whether it's a video, written tutorial, piece of docs or whatever, and produce it in that in that manner um, in a way a very very slice in time uh educational product that i don't monetize <laughs> yeah <laughs> so here's the other thing though slice in time right i have encountered videos from you or from Chainlink yep. that occasionally have a giant disclaimer that say hey this yep. is outdated go to this link instead uh, yep. i think that is so important because people don't realize that educational content has to keep up with the the underlying tech. So how do you how do you approach maintaining your docs at both at Chainlink and some of the own, the other stuff you built personally as the tech progresses? So so documentation is is the easiest, right? It's just text. You make a PR. You you say updated. Um, you can have versioning for your documentation. Um, that doing docs is really easy. Videos is much harder. Um, that's something that I'm constantly struggling with, constantly trying to figure out the. The way we've, we've been doing it so far is just, yeah, adding that disclaimer. But even that's kind of tough because we don't always know when our videos go outdated. So we have to like basically wait for a comment to come in, which is more reactive than proactive, which kind of hurts. So keeping the videos up to date is is tricky, right? And then the the question then becomes, okay, if, if it all changes, do I take the time to make like an update video, which can be really difficult. So on the, the 32 hour video, I'm kind of upset about this. But one of my sections, it's, it's pretty much all still up to date, which is awesome. But one of my later sections, I used a tool that just got completely reworked recently. And I came to 
this choice. Hey, do I make a video going over the rework or do I just tell people to skip it? And I ended up just saying, hey, I just skip it because all the work that you would need to do to get it to work with the new stuff, it's not really worth it. So I said, just skip it. Um, you can still follow along the video. You can learn all the front end. It's, it's front end stuff anyways, though. So it's kind of more optional. And we cover most of what you need to know for front end before the video anyways. But I ended up just saying, skip it. Um, and that's what I do on a lot of my videos, which is kind of tough. Putting a little disclaimer saying, hey, like this video is outdated, right? It, um, it, it hurts to do that. I don't love doing that because it's like, oh, you spend all this time making this video and, and you're basically saying, hey, forget it. But I think that's the right play because, again, question is, how do I create the most value for people? Well, don't point them in directions of tutorials that are outdated. So, yeah, no, I think that's a, that's a good mindset to have. YouTube sucks in that you can't, uh, you can't like, change the video yeah. that's pointed at the same link i mean i mean i get it right because you, you know i get it you're like hey like look this this video of you know me farting got 10 million views when it was like originally like a justin bieber song or something i, I get it but yeah i agree it's frustrating yeah 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 okay so so on the reactive side you mentioned obviously you have to kind of wait for some comment to come in something i struggle with is staying on top of like a trillion developer questions right like people that, people that do <laughs> yes. dev like it's just part of life and you are in a different position where people ask you like really general stuff you know mm -hmm. um and they ask me that too but i think you're in a, in a situation where you built a brand and, and people are are coming to you with these things how do you approach this I, i've seen you say some really really interesting and helpful things about like like answering the question for yourself on on Stack Overflow and posting a link to that to, tr to create like this like index. But I'd love to hear you talk through how you manage all of this in inbound in terms of questions. Yeah, well, it's it's gotten easier actually because I I understand what the goal is. Right, the goal is to help as many people um, as efficiently as possible. Right, the goal is scale. How do we help more people? And as a developer advocate in this space, so I guess now we're getting to more nitty gritty developer advocacy stuff. As a developer advocate in this space, or really just any space, your job is not only to be a wizard of your technology, but of your industry. So as Web3 or smart contract developer advocates, we both get to and have to be smart contract experts. So when people ask me general questions, that's a part of my role, right? Because I both get to and have to be um, a specialist kind of just of the industry. Now, uh, your question is, okay, well, when you get all these questions, how do you deal with it, right? Are you just answering questions one by one? Uh, that's what I originally did. And that's awful, right? So I would have my inbox just like filled on Discord with like, hey, can you help debug my code? Hey, I'm running to this thing. Hey, this, that, the other thing. And something that I've been pushing a lot harder on, and I've made some content on this, is uh, kind of effective. I, I should come up with a name for this, but like effective triaging or effective um, an effective pipeline for like when you get stuck. And if we want to help other people as efficiently as possible, when somebody learns something, we as a community should learn it. And what's the best way to do that? Well, if they ask that question on something like Stack Overflow, Stack Exchange, some site that gets indexed by a Google search or or now like a you know an AI bot, 
that's going to help us learn as a community because the next, so like, let's say someone says, Hey, you know, hard hat's giving me this error, error X, Y, Z. They put that on stack exchange. The next person who runs into that error, they aren't going to ask me, they're going to get the answer quicker, more efficiently because me and this other person have already figured out how to debug that in a public manner. So I'm very pro and you'll see this all the time. Some people even like, were memeing me on it a little bit. Um, they were like, hey, anytime you ask Patrick a question on Twitter, he'll just be like, great question, ask it on Stack Overflow, right? Because Twitter doesn't get indexed very well. Stack Overflow, Stack Exchange, it gets indexed phenomenally. So ask your questions there. That way we can learn as an industry. And oftentimes I'll tell them to ask it there and then I'll go answer it there. Um, but I, we as a community should be trained to ask our questions in public forums so that artificial intelligence can index them and web searchers can index them. So that's kind of the mentality I have uh, behind answering these questions. Yeah. Yeah. I need, to, I need to personally be better about that. I think it would help my life a lot and it would just make me more effective and able to contribute more broadly, right? Than just in, inside of a bunch of separate Discord. Yep. I mean, they're public, they're public channels that I point people to, but still, it's just Discord is bad for indexing some of this stuff, right? Yeah, Discord uh, Discord is, I've been very frustrated with Discord. Like people, same thing. People DM me still on Discord and I, I'll point it to my video. I'm trying to figure out how to get us as a community to be better educated in. Because yeah, like we're still not doing it as effectively as, as we should be. Um, and Discord is just a, has just a mountain, a mountain of information that we'll never have access to, right? Questions that have been asked have been answered hundreds of times on Discord. And we just need to move them over to a forum that gets indexed. Um, and, and so that's where I'm pushing people more and more. Like anytime I have a question, like even if it's like if I get stuck at something for five minutes, I'll ask it on Stack Overflow. And then once I solve it five minutes later, I'll go answer it. Right. And the next time I get stuck, I'll Google it and I'll unblock myself from the past. If that makes sense. <laughs> but, yeah. but yes, we as a community need to get better at at answering and question answer and answering there so that we can scale more efficiently. Yeah, that's interesting. Maybe someone should write a grant for like to like the Ethereum Foundation to literally manually go in and pull Discord question and answers out into Stack Overflow. Well, there's there's a there's a team working on that. Um, and a couple of teams work on that, like Piranha, a, a group that I'm involved in, they're making it like a decentralized Q&A forum, which is really exciting. One of the things that they're working on because they know crypto is on Discord is doing exactly that. Uh, now that we have all these cool AI tools, maybe somebody will do it with AI. Um, but yeah, absolutely. Like pulling those questions off Discord to get them indexed, yes, would be very helpful. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I'm with you. Um, another follow-up dev, dev advocacy or education question. Um, you mentioned obviously like a, a mistake in that, that you maybe see a lot of developer relations folks make is always answering these questions one-off in Discord and, and not doing this in a more scalable way. Are there any other common mistakes or patterns or things you see uh, people like doing in, in DevRel that you think they should just stop doing? Like any any common mistakes, bad advice that you've seen out there that you wish people would would correct? Yeah, sure. And, and let me let me just quantify that one though, because it's not. I don't I don't just like ignore my DMs either, right? Like, um, I'm. But you, you just want to think about things in a systematic way, right? I've had developer advocates tell me, hey, man, it's really cold when you tell people to go post things on, on Stack Overflow and Stack Exchange. Like, that's kind, of, that's kind of harsh of you. And I usually respond with almost something exactly like this. I say, no, 
it's harsh of them to expect me to debug only their problem, right? That's super selfish of them. It's, it, it's disappointing that they wouldn't want to help other people. Like, why should they be the only one to get the knowledge? Um, so I think about it the other way. And a lot of people go, oh, but I want to be super, super helpful. And I say, great, you will be substantially more helpful if you get things indexed, right? If you just keep answering people in your DMs, you're going to train them that that's what they should do. They should just DM. You're always going to be there. You're not. It doesn't scale. Now, in the beginning, in the beginning, it's kind of okay. Like if you're a very, very small technology and you have like two users who are asking you questions, that's more okay. But even then, even then, I'll go back and I'll take our conversation and I will put it on Stack Overflow or Stack Exchange. If they ask me a really good question that I want indexed somewhere that I, I know other people are going to ask, I will do the work and I will put it there. Uh, so that's, I guess that's tip number one, is you want to think about things in terms of scale. But on the other side of things, that doesn't mean you ignore kind of those one on one interactions, right? Because the users of your technology are the best feedback you will get, period, right? So if you don't know who's using your technology kind of on an intimate level, you'll never really understand where the tool can be improved. So most people generally do things more on the one-on-one and they don't do the scale, but you can get caught up in only focusing on scale and then never actually knowing what's up, right? So uh, so that's kind of the feedback there. But the question was, what are other things developer advocates do that are mistakes? Let me think about that for a second. Yeah, so actually, uh, I could probably rant about this. There's a lot of stuff now that I think about it. So another thing a lot of developer advocates do is they chase views and they chase likes. So if you you might have seen on Twitter, there there's less now, but there used to be a lot of people who would just copy paste what other people have tweeted that have done well and just be like, look, I'm original. Like I've seen a hundred, you know, uh, this is your roadmap to being a web three developer. Step one, JavaScript, step two, solidity, step three, you know, remix, but like the super, super generic evergreen tweets and evergreen content. That stuff is, is good every once in a while. But if like, that's all you're doing. Yes. Um, since it's so general, like it applies to a lot of people, you'll get like a lot of followers, you'll get a lot of likes or whatever, but it doesn't actually move the needle. It do, it's, it's not, really that helpful information, right? And so don't focus, I call them uh, vanity metrics. Don't focus on vanity metrics. Don't focus on likes. Don't focus on views. Get metrics that are important to your business, right? So if you're, you know, if you're, um, uh, if you're an API, uh, maybe it's number of calls to that API, you know, users that have signed up. Um, people downloading your SDK. You want your metrics to be things that really show people are using your tool, right? Because the purpose of developer advocacy is to teach people to use, know, and love your tool uh, and not just look at your tool, right? Likes, views, that's marketing. We're developer advocacy. We are uh, downloads. We are um, installs. We are uh, uploads. We are our API calls. You know, get metrics that actually matter and stay far away from the vanity stuff. So that's another one. Um, maybe we can come back to it. If you give me another five minutes, I bet you I'll think of more. Yeah, that's a very good answer. And it's it's something that I think is uh, 
people think that being a developer advocate means, hey, I have to go build a gigantic social media following. It's not necessarily the case. Um, no, I think your your comments earlier about how can I help as many people, that's the right frame of mind to to look at this from. Um, and I think you'll you'll get much further, right? I'd rather have a thousand followers on Twitter and have helped a million developers than the inverse. Right? That's that's the way to look at it. Absolutely. Uh, focus on how can I create value for a lot of people, and if that's what you focus on, you will do much better. There's a lot of people that I know that have small sh- social media followers, social media followings, but do in- incredible, crazy work behind the scenes. Um, yeah, you don't need a huge media following. And in fact, um, I've seen people with large social media followings that I go, I wouldn't want to work with them. I don't care that they have 100,000 followers because everything they're posting is generic. It's copy paste from somebody else. It's not actually helping anybody. Um, so stay far away from that. Yep. I think that's really good advice. Okay. So moving into some more smart contract stuff, you did a really cool uh, thread, I thought. I don't, I don't know how long ago this was, but you broke down gas efficiency and like Huff, Yule, Viper, Solidity. Uh, I thought that was a lot of fun. I'll link it in the show notes. But where do you stand today on favorite smart contract programming languages <laughs> right well let's let's get let's get spicy with this one you know do you don't you don't have one or see see i'm not going to get that spicy because i don't have a favorite i i think I, I i can be very objective about this because that's how i feel i feel very objective uh in my mind if you're going to code something in production use viper or solidity i mean they're high level they have a lot of checks in them to help you not screw up um, both of them are really good. I mean, Solidity has a huge, huge following. It's the most used language by far. 85% of all value is, is stored in smart, uh, Solidity. Um, but Viper is really solid. Uh, I think a lot of people are sleeping on Viper. Um, it's more gas efficient in a lot of cases. Um, but Viper just kind of has this, the momentum, um, uh, that's, that it's been running. So both languages are really good. I like both languages. I know both of the teams. Um, I, I'm I'm really looking forward to what they're building next. When it comes to Huff, Huff is basically writing in opcodes, uh, which is great if you want to be super granular with what you're doing, but also terrifying because if you screw up, you screwed up. <laughs> um, so there's, it's just, it's a lot easier to make a mistake when you get that granular with it. So I wouldn't recommend it for for a lot of production stuff. If you need something very specific, super, super, super like performant for whatever reason, great use Huff. And I also think Huff is great to learn because it teaches you everything about like low-level EVM code. It teaches you about opcodes. You can kind of write opcodes in this more formatted way. So I highly recommend people learn Huff just as a learning tool to understand what goes on under the hood. But yeah, I wouldn't, wouldn't use it in production. And then Yule, Yule is... If you want an assembly language, I would say use Huff. Maybe that's my spicy take. When it comes to Yule or Huff, I would be like, just use Huff. Um, if you want to do some inline Yule in your Solidity, great. That's what it's there for. But if you're just going to write in pure Yule, I would say, yeah, maybe maybe do Huff. Uh, there's some weird oddities with Yule that I don't love. But for inline Solidity, it's great. Nice. Yeah, we actually had on a Huff contributor a few weeks ago. Named, he goes oh, by Vex awesome. on, on Twitter. He's going to be happy to hear you. <laughs> he, he said the same thing right he's like hey look i like huff i'm not gonna write my whole like i'm not gonna right. write a whole protocol on huff but it's it's an amazing no. learning tool right so i think that's definitely that's a good way to look at it 
Um, on shooting yourself in the foot, though, right? Like you, you can shoot yourself in the foot pretty badly in assembly. Uh, how do you look yes. at smart contract security? Um, how do you how do you talk about this to people that are coming into the space and trying to learn? Uh, just like security in general, or what do you mean? Yeah, just how do you how do you approach it in things that you build, and also how do you try to teach people to approach it? Yeah, it's it's a constant battle, and it's a constant thing that we as a community need to upgrade. I mean, if you look at the current tooling of the space, I mean, we have some great tools that help with security, like Slither, you know, Echidna, pretty much anything Trailabits puts out. But from a high level, it's it's kind of weak sauce. Um, like, we see the same exploits happen over and over again. We see reentrancy attacks. We see Oracle manipulation attacks. We see all these things that we go, ah. we go, ah, like, what haven't we fixed this already? Um, and security, when people are first learning about things, I I don't go super deep into because it's it can be overwhelming, right? If you're like learning what a UNT two fifty six is, and then I go, oh, by the way, like make sure you don't do a reentrancy attack here. Here's what a reentrancy is. People are going to be like, what in the what is he talking about? So security, I usually go into after the fundamentals. Um, and then when we get to security, that's when I start kind of harping like security is super important. Um, here, take all this reading material, you know, go through, uh, go through all the common exploits, learn about, you know, um, Slither, Echidna, you know, all these tools, look at some audits from these protocols and, and these, these groups. Um, but security is, is kind of tough. And I'm, I'm working on uh, right now, like a, just a better way to approach security because right now it's kind of like all right write your smart contracts kind of google around make sure you're doing kind of best practices hopefully you've you've seen best practices from like you know consensus has some really good best practices uh and then go to audit and like that's the process or go to like code for arena or something um and that's the process and i don't think it's great um and i'm working on trying to create some educational materials so that we as a community can get better at security and then i'm also hoping we as a community uh, build some new tools because our tooling is lacking right now. <laughs> On the topic of tooling, this is something we actually like to ask almost every guest. Like, what what tooling do you wish somebody would build for this space? Oh, what tooling do I wish someone would build? Okay, well, number one, uh, voting. Voting right now is atrocious. If you vote on chain and you have a a thousand person community, you do one vote a month. Uh, let's say it's it's one dollar to vote. You're costing your community a thousand dollars a month. If you have a hundred thousand people in your community, hundred thousand dollars a month, and that's just with one vote, right? Let's say you have ten dollar ten ten votes a month, which you should, right? That's that's a million dollars a year, or excuse me, a year. I was giving the wrong metrics. There's a lot of money being lost in voting. Now, what a lot of people do is they go, okay, f that. We're not going to do on-chain voting. We're going to do off-chain voting. Well, guess what? All the off-chain solutions are horribly centralized. And somebody's going to get screwed over very soon. I don't know who, like, we've been super lucky so far, but all the off-chain solutions are super centralized and awful. So uh, I need somebody to build a decentralized voting solution. Architecture, real simple. You have a Chainlink node, which puts, or excuse me, a Chainlink network, which puts IPFS hashes of votes in a Filecoin, a SIA, some decentralized storage solution. And then once the vote Time is over. The Chainlink Oracle Network reads the votes, puts it back on chain. So somebody needs to build that. Somebody needs to build an artificial intelligence security tool. That's something that I'm hoping I have time to work on, but 
it's unlikely. Uh, someone needs to build that. Um, somebody needs to build. Uh, I mean, I'm kind of biased, like with Chainlink stuff. Someone needs to build um, a, a tool where we can actually get weather data. We can actually get. Um, I mean, weather data would be the easiest start in uh, on chain in a cheap, affordable manner, so that we can start having you know like insurance contracts for you know farmers and whatnot. There's a lot of stuff that I wish people build. So both protocols on chain and tooling. Um, yeah, there's a lot of stuff for sure. Yeah, there you go. There you go, kids. <laughs> there's 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 more. The list probably goes on and on and on. And um, yeah, like there's there's I mean, there's just so much stuff to do in this space. There's so much cool things that can be built that have not been built yet. For sure. For sure. Okay, couple couple questions here as we wrap up. Another one that's very similar to the question I just asked you, but is a little more, I guess, on the optimistic side about what already exists in new developments is like there's a lot of cool things that are still happening, even given the state of whatever the whatever whatever the market's doing, there are cool things being built, cool developments. What are some things in the space that you're really excited about? The new developments, new protocols, new new tooling uh, that you'd like to maybe shout out? Yeah, I mean, I mean, I'm obviously biased, uh, but pretty much everything Chainlink's working on, I'm crazy excited for. Um, so CCIP is something Chainlink's been working on for some time. It's their cross-chain interoperability protocol. It's a way for you to basically send transactions cross-chain in a decentralized manner. Most bridges that you use today are centralized. And obviously, you know, whenever you use one of those bridges, you're just keeping your fingers crossed that they're not going to rug you. So CCIP is something I'm really excited for. Chainlink staking uh, v01 just came out, um, which is really, really exciting. I'm excited for that to kind of uh, move forward. Um, what else am I excited for? Uh, so Filecoin just came out with their new FVM or their FEVM. Um, that's something I'm really excited to play with. I haven't, I haven't looked too deep into it, but I'm excited for that. Uh, more layer twos like ZK Sync, crazy excited for. Um, Stark, uh, Starknet. I'm excited for. Um, yeah, just more like zk stuff in general. I'm excited for. I mean, there. Uh, this is another one. I mean, the list goes on and on. <laughs> uh, I'm excited for a lot of stuff. Ave's working on a stable coin. I think that that's like really exciting. Curve just released their white paper for their stable coin, which has kind of this new, um, uh, this new way to do collateral, which I'm excited for. I mean, Sam. I mean, I mean, I'm, hey, look, devs, if you're new, if you're looking to get into Web3, there is a long list of stuff to be excited for here. Cool. Yeah, I'll make sure I link all the Chainlink stuff as well. You, you guys have been working on some cool stuff, and I'll make sure that there are some pointers to it. Um, okay, last question. Let's say 10 years from now, like, you, you go to sleep, you go in one of those, like, chambers, you know, like, they send people in when, when we're going to go to, like, Mars or something like that. You're completely shut out. You come back in 10 years, you come back and you look at Web3. What do you hope the industry looks like? Oh, oh, here's what I hope. Here's what I hope. I hope the current system of finance, the traditional system of finance, all the infrastructure is ripped out and replaced with a decentralized financial system. Oh, oh my goodness. Be phenomenal. Everyone's coding and working with their AI assistants. They're doing their finance with their AI assistants. Um, and Chainlink has come out with easier ways to bring more data on chain. And we have all these way more sophisticated agreements 
using real world data more than just pricing information. So, I mean, at a very high level, that's what it looks like. Like the current financial incumbents gone where we don't have like all these entities that just like keep all the alpha and don't share any of it. Uh, yeah, like it's just, and everything's more transparent. There's, there's, uh, information asymmetry is, is gone or at least greatly minimized for, for traders and people looking to get into finance. And uh, we just have a much more fair financial system. To me, DeFi is one of, if not the most powerful use case for smart contracts. Um, DAOs are, are interesting. Uh, we, we still need to figure out voting. We, Currently, in my view, we currently really suck at voting right now. Um, but for me, in 10 years, oh, that would be amazing if if traditional finance was changed with DeFi. That's probably not going to happen in 10 years, but that would be awesome. I love it. It's a fantastic answer. Well, Patrick, thank you so much for coming on today. Thank you for having me, Sam. Mm-hmm.